Hey there, listeners. This is Justin with a quick note before today's episode. Spotify recently allowed users to start leaving reviews for podcasts, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would consider listening to the show on Spotify, leaving us a positive review. I don't even think you have to write anything in. You just give a star rating, and that's it. But uh, if you're willing to do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks, and enjoy today's show. Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career in life. Today's episode number 416, How to Sell Shovels in a Gold Rush, with Trevor Shirk at Terrain. It was like, how often in your life does a brand new industry get created from nowhere? And for me, I, I got excited about that. I got excited about the clients. We truly fell in love with the clients. Like we love having our clients in the office. We love spending time with our clients. It was like kind of the perfect storm. We knew we could deliver a lot of value. We liked who we were gonna serve and the industry was underserved. So if we put that all together, it was like, this is the right vertical for us to scale and focus on. Well, I'm so grateful I did this interview. I, I explained at the start that I met Trevor on LinkedIn. He's a fellow entrepreneur here in Denver, but I just gained so much from this conversation. And he and I are grabbing lunch. It's just kind of like the the warm up for that because um, I think that one thing that will come through in this interview is how much um, as a professional, as an entrepreneur, Trevor is constantly learning from others and from books. I am ordering three different books based on ones that he recommended in this episode. We talk a lot about how the riches are in the niches and Trevor's own story of entrepreneurship of how he just started to do things and had a realization and pursued that and had a realization and pursued that. And it led to what he's doing right now, which is selling software specifically targeted at the the cannabis dispensaries, which are booming here in Colorado and elsewhere. We talk a lot about entrepreneurship, and I think this is these are ideas relevant elsewhere. But let me know your feedback on this episode, because honestly, I was just letting my own curiosity drive things and getting pretty tactical on things around hiring, around how to know what ideas to pursue and which ones to let go, about the tactics of selling and what worked in the early stages versus what works now. So a lot of really hands-on things that I hope you find as interesting as I did. As always, at beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find show notes with links to everything we discuss, as well as 415 other episodes just like this one. So with that, let's dive in to my conversation with Trevor. Well, joining me today, also in Denver, Colorado, my guest is Trevor Shirk. Trevor, welcome to Beyond the Uniform. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So let me give listeners first context for why we're having this conversation and then some information on Trevor. Trevor and I connected on LinkedIn, big plug for LinkedIn. And we finally connected uh, about a week ago and just chatted shop. And there's a lot of things that I think are really interesting about his story that I wanted to learn more about, but um, I thought our audience would benefit as well. And we'll, we'll get into that once we start the questions. But here's Trevor's background. He is the CEO and co-founder of Terrain where he has generated $28 million in revenue with over 160 dispensaries. He graduated from West Point in 2008. He served in the Army for over eight years, where he was a Ranger-qualified combat engineer, including combat ops in Afghanistan. When he left the Army, he did Stanford's Ignite program and became CEO of Stratic Solutions, where he did SEO and digital marketing strategy work. After that, he co-founded Terrain nearly two years ago. 
And, and so Trevor, let me give you room because I, I just kind of pieced that together from digital stocking, but anything to add or amend to that bio? No, that's actually really good. Covers a lot of those high points for sure. Awesome. We're going to rewind the clock in a second, but let's start with where you're at right now. Um, how would you explain terrain and what you're doing if you bumped into another another veteran on the street? Yeah, what I would say is, you know, we're a marketing technology company aimed at helping the retail cannabis industry. So your local dispensary that's you know coming online in a state that is now legal, we serve them with marketing technology solutions that are very are high impact, high value for them and growing their operation. And that's been our sweet spot for about the last two years with Terrain. Uh, before that with Stratix, we would work in all kinds of different industries, but we, we kind of found our niche there in that industry. That's great. So, so two things for context of why I was so excited for this conversation. The first is I'm such a big fan as an entrepreneur of the phrase in a gold rush, sell shovels. <laughs> and so when I connected with Trevor, I didn't really know what he was doing too much before we chatted, but my adrenaline starts pumping because I'm like, man, can cannabis dispensaries, it's a exploding industry, whether you like it or not, whether you're, you know, a teetotaler or not, it is exploding. And I see so many people going into the dispensary side. We've had an interview with a vet who's doing that. But what I love about what Trevor found is he said, okay, this, you know, we'll, we'll hear if this is actually true for a story, but this industry is exploding. What are they going to need? Well, they're going to need to be found online. Let's do that. So I love that selling of a shovel to those who are going out for the gold rush. It kind of, in my view, it insulates you a little bit from the volatility of this brand new space. And then the, the second thing is, um, it's another podcaster, I'm blanking on his name, but I always hear him say, you know, that the riches are in the niches. Absolutely. And I'm a big fan of that too. One of the reasons I was excited to hear more about Trevor's story is that as an entrepreneur myself, I often try and do everything. I often try to be all things to all people. But when I see people do what Trevor do, and they they kind of narrow in and say like, you know what, we're just going to focus on dispensaries. It makes marketing easier, product easier, it makes everything easier. And it's it's very, very difficult for me at least to do. So So I'm sure we'll get into that. But maybe rewind the clock for us, Trevor. You spend over eight years in the army. What was your transition like? And am I correct that you kind of your part of that transition was the Ignite program at Stanford? Yes. Yeah. So I I knew I wanted to get out of the military about two years before I finally got out, and it was just that entrepreneurial bug hit me. I was with my buddies at. Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And there was some Forbes article that came out that we all magically read at the same time. And then we're talking about it at a training exercise about tattoo removal and how big of an industry it would be. And the military was starting to be very more strict on their, if you have certain tattoos, maybe they wouldn't let you stay in the military. And we just kind of caught the bug where we were like, oh, we should start a tattoo removal clinic. And in that process, started going through everything we'd read and you know, one of the things that came up was, well, we need to have a website. We need to get people to sign up to come to the clinic if we create it. And that was where I kind of got started in the entrepreneurial journey, but I still had time to serve. So I was very much like a freelance side project, always trying to learn as much as I could about business and marketing as a whole, you know, for the next, that was in 2013 in the fall till summer of 2016, when I finally got out of the military and then went right to the Stanford program as I think I was still on terminal leave at that program. And then 
which was a great program. And I learned a ton and immediately left it and went right back to Denver and started the company. I, I just want to give a plug because I'm I'm a big believer. I, I at least feel like veterans are very hands-on. We like to roll up our sleeves and Absolutely. do things. We like to execute. And so what I appreciate about what Trevor was doing there is, you know, had an itch, an entrepreneurial itch, and he just got about doing things. And obviously, as we know from his story, fast forwarding this tattoo business removal, it doesn't seem like it that became a central part of his story, but it was a vehicle through which he learned about marketing and all these other aspects. And, you know, I just feel like for myself and for likely many listeners, rather than learning just through a book or through an academic experience, man, just try to start something and you're going to learn so much drinking from that fire hose of entrepreneurship. So what was that? What was this genesis then for Stratex? Was that, did you have that idea at Ignite or after? Yeah. So in Ignite, that was, I knew I wanted to come back and do marketing, but I hadn't set myself on any specific niche. And in that jumping right in and getting started, you know, the first month was just brutal because it was, yeah, I had to go learn how to sell and I had to get some clients and generate some revenue. And then from that fall of 16 to about February of 17 was just a, a grind and getting something started getting through the mechanics. I think I hired one person just as an assistant to help. And it was about the end of February of would have been 17 that we kind of sat down and said like, man, we really want to find a solution that helps a lot of local businesses that we could charge a really lower price for and serve a lot of people with. And that was our hyper-local solution that was originally our our main thing we did in multiple industries and then eventually into the cannabis industry for dispensaries. And the, the genesis of that first thing was I have, my mother was a small business owner who owned a daycare in our house. And I, I thought about, man, the price that I would want to charge her for some marketing services, she would never have been able to pay. So maybe if I could solve, you know, find a solution that a local business owner could pay 500 to a thousand dollars a month and get, you know, asymmetric value, like make way more revenue because of that impact. And that was how we got to the the hyper-local solution that a lot of dispensaries use today. And so that was kind of our jumping off point at that point. Who's the weed? Are you using we like I do? I'm a solopreneur and I always say we because I feel so insecure about just being me, but who's the weeder? <laughs> yeah, it was mainly me, but I did have other folks involved. So other contractors I had that were helping. And it was one of those moments in time where I'd figured something out with one of our existing clients. And then it was, hey, what do you guys think about this as the way forward? What if we focus just on this? And that was like a, it's one of those moments, I think, when you're as an entrepreneur, where you sit down and you're like, I just observed something really impactful happen really fast. The only way I got to this point was by just grinding and constantly like trying to make it work. And then you observe something and then you have that kind of light bulb moment, that clear thought that's like, that might be something in itself alone. Like that little, we did this, it created this, that fast value, like was like, wait a second, there's something there that I think we need to double down on and look at and build the business around. And that was that hyper-local approach to marketing. 
in those early days or, or maybe just with Stratix in general, can you give examples of like, you know, when you're starting a company from scratch, how are you getting your first customers? And in particular, I'm just trying to plant the seeds for those listening interested in anything sales related of just kind of what some of the nuts and bolts look like or some different tools that they might have as they think of like going from just me to me and at least one person paying me money. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a huge hurdle. That first 30 days I was selling every introduction I could get. I was trying to get in front of a potential business owner who I could help solve a pain point. And I think you have to first go to your network. And if you think, Hey, I know I could help a business do solve this pain point. I believe what you need to do is start telling people in your network that you believe you can help solve that pain point. And so I had a mentor, that mentor you know, who owned a company had other business owners in his network. And the moment I would say, hey, I think this is what I'm going to do and start and how I think I could help a business owner you know, grow their revenues. Then when they run across one of their peers that says, hey, I'm struggling with this. Do you know anybody that could help? They can connect that dots. And that my first sales are absolutely from referrals of people in my network that made introductions or said, hey, I think I know somebody that might be able to help can I connect you guys? And I think uh, if you're starting an entrepreneurial venture, you have to go get that first sale, that first transaction, that first them betting on you with, you know, making a paying or signing a contract, something, because you're going to need that psychological win as well. Because when you're pitching and getting shut down or getting no's or nobody follows up or they don't see that you could help, I think you're going to need that win. So I would focus on getting that win and make sure you use your network and make sure you have a very clear understanding of what you believe you can solve pain point wise. And I, early on when I had no case studies, no credit, like first client, I had to like put you know, my skin in the game, I guess, and say, listen, if this doesn't work out, then I'll just give you all your money back. And that kind of commitment is what will set you apart so that that person, that entrepreneur that you're selling to, maybe in my case, or that customer who's buying your first product can commit and assume some risk with you. And I think that allowed me to get those first clients. And then from the success of those first clients, we've been able to really you know, leverage that as we've done this before, let us help you with it as well. I, I love this. I'm, I'm going to want your feedback on what I'm going to say here, because I had this conversation yesterday with a friend who, you know, my sense is he's always investing in skills. He's always upping his game, which I admire, but he uses that as an excuse to avoid sales. And, and what I told him is like, look, when you, when you sell this first time, you don't actually know if you can do it. Like you've got all these skills, but you might not, if you're probably, you know, in my opinion, if you're doing this right, you're a little bit over your skis. You're a little bit out of your comfort zone and you don't really know you can do it, but that's right. You got to sell it because that process is going to evoke from you what you need to solve that problem. And yes, like you said, this person's taking a bet on you. And so maybe you put equal skin in the game by saying, I'll take your money back. But it's like you're learning and perfecting while people are paying you money. And that can be really uncomfortable. I, sp I think especially from military backgrounds when we, you know, if you say you're going to do something, you will do anything to do it. But my experience in entrepreneurship and sales is like, there, you know, the first time I did things with Captivate, with Storybox, like, 
I didn't really know if I would do it, but I knew I could figure it out. And so it's almost like you're assembling the plane on the the, the precipitous drop into the cavern, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you're you're spot on. Like the first commitments we made, I can remember my first sale. We were going to build a website in 96 hours, launch a Facebook campaign, and then optimize that website for like on-page SEO. And my only real knowledge that was probably comfortable with was that third item. The other two, I knew I could pull off, but it was high stakes. And those were stressful four days, you know, three and a half days, whatever it was. But that was the win that got us going. It got the the flywheel in motion. And I think it takes courage. You don't need to be like, you don't have to lie. You don't have to like oversell it, but you have to believe that you can deliver and that you'll do whatever it takes between what's legal and moral to find a way to help and add value and earn that that investment in you, even if you're not 100% sure. And in that first deal, I had to learn some new skills on the fly. One of which was how do you set up a Facebook marketing campaign to have, once they sign up for their first appointment, how do I have an, an email or a text sent to them that they could uh, get the reminder? And I remember it was like one checkbox. It took me like four hours to figure out that if I just check that and do it this way, it works. But I mean, I tested it like so many times and the stakes were high. It was like Thursday night. We needed to deliver by 4 p.m. on Friday and it was high stakes, but it, it got us in the game. And I think military people are really, it's easy to fall into that trap that I got to learn something else. But there's a there's this clip that I've seen and I think it so captures uh, entrepreneurship and it shows this these two lions and there's all these like wildebeest running by. And if you correlate that to being an entrepreneur, there's, there's always going to be opportunities in front of you just running by. And then the one's just sitting there waiting, waiting, like it's looking for the perfect opportunity. And then this other lion comes out of nowhere and just barrels into the like wildebeest herd. And it is complete chaos, but it's like, excuse my language. I'll be danged if he doesn't grab a wildebeest and he's got it on the ground. And it, I guarantee when he committed to going into that, didn't know which one he was going to go but or grab, but it was like, I know they're there and I'm just going to go for it. And I think that's at some point you have to understand that you there's no perfect, you will never have all the skills to pull any of this off ever. Like nobody is out there as a complete subject matter expert in every part of this, but you got to have that courage to jump in and believe in yourself enough that you'll figure out what you need to figure out. And then at the very least, if it doesn't work out, you have learned so much more that when you kind of re-engage and get back up and go after it again, you're going to have so much more experience and you're not going to be afraid to go in and get after it. And that, if you ever, I can't remember how you would find that clip, but it's on YouTube and it's really powerful because that, that line just barrels in there and he's, you know, got his first deal done by getting out there and just going after it. I think you need to do that. I think that's such an incredible mental image. That's so powerful of just throwing yourself in and, and to give, um, to give credibility to what you're saying and what you did, like the, the, the terror of doing that, like the truth of it is like the terror of being surrounded by these willerbees that can trample you. And just, I'm sure, I'm sure that lion got uh, more than his fair yeah. share of scuffs, but he took down, you know, the wildebeest or the gazelle or whatever it was, you know, my experience, and I'm sure yours Absolutely. as well is like, yeah, it sucks getting rejected. It sucks asking for intros it sucks like a lot of these things can be really painful at first and still a decade later for me but i i admire that resolve of like the hunger and the drive 
like forces you to go beyond the fear of, you know, humiliation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, you got to also remember that you're a veteran and, you know, you have all this awesome experience and you can bring so much value to the table and you probably won't even know all that value you can bring to the table, but you never want to let, don't become the, you know, and I hate this word because it, when I was early on in my entrepreneur career, I felt like it all the time, but you don't want to be a entrepreneur in the sense that, you know, like you're at every networking event, but you're not out making deals or selling deals or generating revenue or building a company. You want to be out getting after it because I think it's a Teddy Roosevelt quote. That's like, you know, so your place is never with those like cold and timid souls, who know, neither victory nor defeat. This world rewards people that have audacity to go out and give it a run. And I used to believe that other people that were successful had all this, like they grew up in a better entrepreneurial family. They went to a better school or they had an MBA or they had all these things. And the reality was, no, they just had the audacity to go give it a shot and to commit and jump in. And I think veterans forget that a lot of your experience from combat and things like the consequences of failing there are really high you know, this, a bad day is somebody dies or gets really hurt today. And that's not the case in entrepreneurial land. Like you can take shots on net and miss and it's okay. Like, but that's hard for veterans. I think they, they fall into that trap. It has to be perfect. They gotta be flawless. They can't fail. They can't fail. They can't fail. And the reality is like, you're going to fail in business. Like, and the sooner you develop that tough rhino skin that you can you know, take that hit and get back up, is I think uh, it's going to serve you really well. That's great. And I'll, I'm going to, uh, <laughs> just to give full transparency, I'm going to track down that quote from Roosevelt and, and plaster that on my office wall here. That's so great. Yeah. I think you described when you were talking about like uncovering this hyper local thing that, that seemed like it was <laughs> a real gem that shaped Stratix as a business. Was it similar when you realize like, oh, it's worth tripling down on one specific vertical vertical with, with cannabis dispensaries. Was it like that? Was it a similar feeling and process? Absolutely. It was, we delivered a lot of value to a dispensary chain in Denver. And it, it was another one of those moments of clarity that, you know, it just comes to you. And that kind of like, if you're quiet enough and you can like digest what's happening in front of you and kind of view the business from a higher level and look down on it and think like, okay, we just observed the success. It was that moment where we were like, wow, that we love, we fell in love with our clients because we'd worked in different industries and had, you know, every industry has its own flavor. Like if you work with people that do construction, uh, you work with people that own medical spas or clinics or doctors or dentists or, you know, dispensary owners or liquor store owners, like we had worked with all these different flavors of people. But man, when we ran into the the dispensary business leader that we were serving, we really enjoyed the industry. We felt like it was underserved. It was an the people were very authentic. We loved it. We kind of felt like we were in an industry that going back to your your first uh point with selling shovels, like it it was like how often in your life does a brand new industry get created from nowhere? And for me, I, I got excited about that. I got excited about the clients. We truly fell in love with the clients. Like we love having our clients in the office. We love spending time with our clients. It was like kind of the perfect storm. We knew we could deliver a lot of value. We liked who we were going to serve and the industry was underserved. So if we put that all together, it was like, this is the right vertical for us to scale and focus on. 
And something people don't talk about when you focus on an industry, you actually, a lot of other things get easier for you. You already know the pain points. Sales calls become easier. Marketing materials become easier. Your product, your ability to deliver a product and a solution become easier because you already have refined the process. The the value add is there. You develop a reputation. You have a lot of street credit, like a lot of authority. Like it, it kind of works in your favor to focus on an industry and know that you can really serve it at a high level. As you considered this kind of fixation on the dispensaries, and I'll, and I'll name for our audience to be transparent, I stopped drinking three or four years ago, just didn't think it was additive in my life. I do consume cannabis a couple, you know, probably uh, <laughs> no more than monthly, not like a heavy user, but I'm actually a really big fan of it. It is yeah. legal here in Colorado. And there is there is a stigma, you know, like there's a stigma, I think, still around cannabis use around that as a business. There's a tremendous opportunity there. There's many people who... You know, I, I remember with my classmates from business school, we were saying like, oh, when is McKinsey and Bain and BCG, these big consulting companies, when are they going to get into cannabis? Like there's so much money to be made here, but they might hold it at arm's length because it might taint their brand, which I think is a mistake. But as you considered parachuting into this focus, was there any pushback or hesitancy or sense of like, oh, I don't know if I want to be in that kind of industry that's not really accepted yet? Absolutely. Like there was a apprehension because, you know, I came right out of the military. So I really hadn't been involved with cannabis in, ever, like was very much on the other side where it was, you know, a lot of, you know, testing in the military that you're not going to test positive for THC or, you know, drugs. So I had a very, my own personal bias was, should I be doing this? Is this right? Like my family wasn't like, didn't really partake in it. Um, and I thought about, you know, like if my mother flies in here and I put her in the car from the airport and we drive by our client's place, like, how would I feel about like, that's my client. And then I realized that that was like my personal bias. And if you go into a dispensary and you watch who comes in there, it's, it's amazing. Like from people in a suit coming off of, out of an office job, very white collar to 62 year old lady who has bad arthritis to veteran with PTSD who can't sleep and is tired of all the narcotics that he's prescribed because of mixing them with alcohol creates this insane, like bad cocktail. Like all the people that it could treat, I, I really started to like, be like, Hey, I'm just being very narrow-minded. And, you know, I, we got past it really quickly when I, I saw how much value it can have to people. And then I had a, I had a DUI lawyer friend who I've personally been affected by people that you know, drink and drive. And I'm not, you know, one of my cousins who was 29 was killed in a car wreck. And I think about him a lot because he was one of my best pals who we always hunted and spent time together. And he was killed by a guy who was drunk and on like opium or something at like seven in the morning. And I asked my buddy who was a DUI attorney, I said like, dude, is there as much like, are people that get high and drive like as dangerous as people who drink and drive? And he was very much like, absolutely not. He's like the driving while high, he's like, isn't as dangerous. And I thought about how dangerous it is, like the alcohol abuse and stuff like that. And I, I just really think it's a better alternative to the drinking. It's a better alternative to the hard, addictive narcotics for some people who, you know, I'm not a doctor, I would never tell someone not to take what they're prescribed. But I think some people that's an easy solution is prescribe somebody that and I think cannabis is an alternative that can be really helpful. And I think we, it came to this realization, I was like, I can remember being in the military and people's careers ending because they tested you know positive for THC because they went home on leave and had a weed brownie at their friend's party and 
I, I truly felt like eh, a little bit of a conflict there. But then finally, I came to the realization that we probably got it wrong with cannabis being illegal for a long time. And it doesn't mean we have to live with that forever. We can choose to go a new path and break that stigma. And if you haven't been to a dispensary, you need to just go in and watch who comes in because you'll be blown away. You're like, it's not the stoner culture. It is everybody in America. There's so much demand for this. It's insane. Like you wouldn't guess it. Yeah. And I'll repeat your statement without the probably. I think we did get it wrong. Like from my view, especially, you know, I, I, I just see, I'm sure it's often said, but it's like no one gets high and beats their spouse. You know, it's just like there, there's so many, anyone who is supportive of alcohol, it's hard for me to imagine why they wouldn't be supportive of cannabis when I think that cannabis does far less damage. And I think that, you know, for myself in particular, it's like on the occasions where I, I use that, it is a intentional use. And it's like, I'm not going anywhere or I'm like, it's not like, I feel like the casualness of drinking is what makes it more dangerous because it's this slippery slope that comes down or it's something that people do and no judgment, but like there's something people might do every single night and calorie, just there's like a lot of physical detriment and mental and emotional. And so I don't think that any argument made for alcohol couldn't be made even more strong for for cannabis. I also appreciate your transparency in, in taking us through what it's like to, to branch into an industry that might not have mainstream acceptance yet. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, the once we committed to it, it was surprising how many people around me that I didn't know were big supporters would come out of the woodwork. And you, you realize you're like, oh, actually, there's there's more going on here than I was aware of. Was it kind of like, so when that light bulb went off, what changed? Did you shut down Stratex? Did you meet a partner and started something else? Did Stratex become terrain or like how did one lead to the next? Absolutely. So Stratex was up and running and going and it eventually morphed indirectly into terrain because the company as a whole, the, the idea for the future was let's serve this industry at a really high level. Let's develop highly impactful solutions, not just hyper-local, but technology solutions that add a ton of value for this industry that we kept seeing where we would work with these clients in the retail cannabis industry and the solutions they were being given were a solution from another industry, labeled cannabis and handed to them like, hey, I have a solution. Now I found a problem for it. And we thought that was wrong and that we should do something about it. So Having the relationship with them that was really powerful and being able to help them drive revenue and success, we started at that level, you know, pivoting the company to focus on not just one solution, but building a suite of solutions. And that was the birth of Terrain as the future entity of we wanted to serve this market in a much bigger way beyond just one solution for marketing. And that's how we founded and then shifted into Terrain. I don't want to hope I'm not a broken record for our listeners, but again, you're demonstrating the extreme advantage of niching down. So like you described that a lot of the people being served in this industry were using bastardized versions of other products, not really not really built with someone with an understanding and empathy for their unique needs and their unique uses. And then as you've talked about expanding the product line and, and broadening, again, that only comes, I'm guessing, from a lot of conversations with customers and empathy, understanding what they're needing. Oh, what else can we do to help? Like, could you maybe talk about how you expanded the product line and where some of those innovations came from? Absolutely. I think 
you know, one thing we have as an advantage as veterans is a lot of our experience from the military was, you know, we joined together and we worked together and when things need to get done, we get them done regardless of rank. It's, Hey, this has to get done. So I'm the Lieutenant hand me a wrench and I'm sitting there like helping because it's that kind of camaraderie that like teamwork, that like true collaboration. Well, we had this advantage where we were delivering a solution that added a tremendous amount of value. And instead of just, you know, sitting it back here in Denver, we would, we continue to go out on the ground and meet our clients in person, in their dispensaries, in their corporate headquarters. And we just continue to ask questions and we were listening all the time for the pain points. Because if you want to sell and be successful in a business, I feel like the one of the, you, the first thing you have to have is that product market fit, which to me, if you distill that down and solve a pain point that somebody's willing to pay for. And if you do that, to find that, you have to hear the pain point. You have to hear the pain in their voice or the, man, this is so frustrating. We manually upload this. Or if I could just figure out how to get more people in the door here, that would change the game for me. Like those are pain points that you can then, you know, if you observe and you take note of, you can come back and say like, how could we do that? And then go back and say, listen, I think we have a solution for this. Here's what I'm thinking might work. Would you be willing to give it a shot? And that's how I think you can really be successful. And because we niched down, we, we had that front row seat of the game that's being played and we could, you know, ask the customer or client and say like, what's going on here? How can we help? What can we do to help? And that's where they, we call it somewhat kind of spilling the beans. They say like, oh, this is what really we need solved. And I think that's an advantage if you're focused in an industry. If you're bouncing between industries, it's hard to get that granular on one because you're now switching from solving how do we drive foot traffic into a dispensary to how do we drive calls for foundation repair in Denver. And those have two different flavors. They might be similar solutions, but there's there's uh, very specific things in each one that make it a little different. And I think you you have an advantage if you're focused in one. I like that phrase, spilling the beans. That's such a great, <laughs> great yeah. metaphor for it. Have you noticed trends? Because I'm imagining you're working with so many companies, so many customers, you get so much feedback. What kind of makes the difference between the feature ideas, product ideas that you don't pursue versus the ones that you do? Is it is there something in your gut feel? Is it the fact that you just heard it for the 50th time? Or like what distinguishes between the ideas that are dormant versus the ones that you pull the trigger on and put some investment behind? Yeah, I heard this great way of from a guy named Ramit Sethi about his green lights. And he would always categorize, I can't remember the third green light, but I know one of them was willingness to pay, another one an ability to pay. If you assess that, hey, I think this solution would be valuable to you, potential client, and they have, they're like, I would pay to solve that. That's a green light. Tell me when you launch that because I'll sign up for it right now. Those are kind of green lights you should be looking for that makes sense to pursue solving that pain point and then monetizing it over time. I think uh, the ones we haven't pursued were the ones that we didn't start with the pain point first. Like, it was our own ego and our own arrogance that said, we think this is a great idea. And we got tied to this great idea that we had that we thought was like, oh, the industry would love this. And then we like ran it by customers and our clients and they, they, would, they were indifferent. They're like, eh, 
like, cool, I guess, but that really doesn't help me solve A, B, C, and D. These are my real pain points. So I think you have to start at the problem and work back. And everything we've pursued has been from that observation of the problem and seeing the pattern of multiple clients have this same problem. If we developed this, it would solve that problem for them. And then we we actually go and pre-sell what we're going to build before we build it. That way, we're really having evidence that we are onto something. Like, hey, here's an actual statement of work. We're not going to charge you for it, but would you sign here that you'll be the first ones to test it at some ridiculously cheap price, but a price? I think that's a big deal because a lot of people will take things for free that they actually wouldn't sign on a dotted line that they would pay for. And I think those are the kind of, they take courage when you have a great idea to go let the market give you feedback because you don't want to see your idea fail or get thrown, you know, not do, but you got to have that courage because it's truly hedging your bet that it'll work out. And I think that's, that's the next level of like having courage to just say, I know you might not buy this, but tell me if you would and sign this, that when I'm ready to launch it, you're in. And that takes a lot of courage because they might say your great idea is not such a great idea. And I've had a lot of those. So we literally have a deck full of those. (laughs) (laughs) To get super tactical, do you literally have them, like do you send them like a document for electronic signature? Real, And it just says like, if you build this here, I'm willing to pay this price. Yeah, it's a pen to doc proposal, like statement of work that they sign to do this. And I take away the... You know, a lot of people, when they sign contracts, they, they get fired up because they're like, oh, I signed it. I got to like take their money. And it's like, actually, like I use that as a green light to uh, prove that there's something here. If I can sell them on this idea that's conceptual and they're willing to sign on a line that for 20 bucks a month, they'll test it. That's a green light to go ahead and then and build it. That's so great. And, and I know of people I've heard of that will fundraise off of that. They'll say like, Hey, we've got, you know, a thousand people who will pay for this. And it's, it's not as good as revenue, but it's the next best thing. You know, it also makes me think of a friend who started a consumer business and he, he had fake ads on, he had real ads on Facebook for a fake product and he would have people purchase and then refund their money and call them and get feedback. But there is such a big difference between someone saying, I like your idea versus someone saying, I'm willing to pay like, oceans of difference because most people are too scared to say no. Most people are too scared to say like, this is a stupid idea and payment or the intention to pay is the one way to get truth. Absolutely. And keep beware of your friends and family that you run these ideas by because they love you and they don't want to hurt you. And they're going to give you great feedback because the relationship you have, but the true test and you don't want to waste a year and a half on something that never had legs to begin with when there's something out there that is so very valuable that the market is hungry for it. And it's, it's like the fishing hole adage of if you find the right thing, which is that bait you put in the right fishing hole where all the fish are like, they're going to hit it hard. Like they're not, they're hungry. They want to be served a solution. That's what you got to search for it. And it might be out of your ideas, only three that have legs. That's okay. Your job in the early stages is to get through the other 97 and get them off your radar as quickly as possible. And don't let your ego get you tied to your good idea because some of the most successful people in the world have very, very simple concepts. Like 
a guy, Sam Ellis and I, who's one of the co-founders of terrain. He, he literally, we, we joke about zoom DocuSign. Like these are really, really simple concepts. Like they're not that comp like crazy, but well-executed, simple concepts can have tremendous amount of success. So don't turn your nose up at the really simple idea. That's such a great idea too. And another thing I just want to call out for listeners, especially aspiring entrepreneurs is you keep on talking about pain points and many of our audiences probably heard it, but there's that sense of some products are vitamins and some are painkillers or an aspirin and you want to be the aspirin, you know, like when someone has a headache, they are going to pay for aspirin, but a vitamin, you know, I forget to take my vitamins three out of five days, you know? And so what you're describing is a process by, by really figuring out like, man, what is something where, and I love that analogy with the fishing hole, you know, as, as a non-fisher, I can make up what it looks like, but it's like, yeah, when you get the right bait in the right spot, they're after it versus the trickle that, uh, that might be an indication of like, maybe this is not the biggest pain point or highest use of our time right now. Absolutely. And I would throw it to make it that example real is when you have the right product market fit, the right pain point you're solving at the right price to the right market. When you come across that potential client or customer, their decision is so easy. They actually like will cut out your sales process and be like, I'm in, send me what you need signed. I'm in. You already are like, you must have been reading my mind because that's exactly what I needed to figure out and get solved for this week. I'm in. That's what you want. When you're addressing that, you know, when you're that aspirin at the airport, that is 10 times the cost. <laughs> but they you're a motivated buyer at that point if you have a headache at the airport. What about, you know, in your bio, I read off an impressive stat generated 28 million in revenue with over 160 dispensaries. I'm guessing, you know, we talked earlier about tactics of getting the first customers in the door. I'm guessing it's a different type of skill set to get up to that 160th plus dispensary. What are some tactics that you've learned along the way recently of how are you acquiring more customers? Is it marketing? Is it sales? Is it still referrals? Like what are some things that you've learned that others might, uh, might be able to apply? Yeah, I think it's twofold that uh, like if you had, let's say we had 10 dispensaries and it was just me versus the team I have right now is 14 folks. I think you have to have two kind of paradigm shifts as you grow. And one is my job as the leader and the founder is to articulate the direction, the that what we're going to do, why, and where we're going. And then on the next step, I think once you are clear, like this is what we're going to do, this is who we are as a company, where we're going, why we're going to address this pain point. It's a problem worth solving. That's that, you know, getting the, being kind of the cheerleader right? Like the, Hey guys, this is, we're going here and this is what we're going to do. And this is who we help. That's one piece. That's at our vision, articulating being the leader. The second is accepting that real growth. And this comes from a Dan Sullivan concept of the who is greater than the how you have to then shift out of that mindset that it's, if it's to be, it's up to me, which is hard. It is so hard for military and entrepreneurs in general to transcend that I have to go do this. I have to go bend the universe and make this happen. The real leverage, the real juice is finding good people and empowering them to go achieve the mission, the end state. So basically your job, our growth, I can attribute not to me, but to the right hires at the right time that got fired up and have since 
run the ball down the field. And I came off the field as a quarterback more into a coach role because I was started hiring a players to put them in the right places that were way better at certain things than I was. And that paradigm shift of, instead of me, I got to build a team or find, you know, once you get to that level where you have that traction and you have some revenue, that's a, that's a huge point of leverage is how do I find that right? Who, and then let them go figure out the how, you know, I can articulate to them the what and why of that role and what I need them to do why it's important towards that mission, but it's really, they will go do that. And another part of that is hiring the people that are beyond your level and letting them drag your company up to that level. That's something that I, I was the king of bad hires because I would take somebody who showed potential that didn't have the experience and think that they could then grow into a very senior level role and grow with the company. And the reality was a lot of times they might've been able, but not willing. And there's that concept from EOS. that's like, they got to get it, want it and have the capacity to do it. That one of those three, they didn't want. So they weren't a great fit, but we started hiring. A great example is my first great sales team member hire was expensive, hard to like, Oh man, this is going to hurt. But letting that person run wild, she's killed it. And she's grown our company more than I ever could have. And my ego has to take a back seat that she's better than me at selling what we created years ago. Like she's so much better at it. It's so great to hear this, man. It's so timely for me too. This is a lesson I'm needing to hear. And I'm curious, the two, the two things I'm wondering about is, can you give examples of like, how did you find some of these people? And then the second piece is, I remember one of my you know very successful profs in business school said, if I hired right 50% of the time, I, I would be pretty ecstatic. I'm curious, like, what's your just kind of anecdotal hit rate on you know, the people you've hired, how many have you kept versus how many were just kind of misfires? Yeah, I would say we're 50-50 on long-term fits and then short-term, like here for a season and out. The The big shift we made was I brought someone on the team who I, I, she wanted to build a hiring process and have lots of filters and hire on values first. So are they a values fit to the company? And would they fit into this culture? And I had to like grow out of, I always thought that my strategies would outperform, you know, like the, the concepts we could come up with, the way we grow, we could outmaneuver and outperform, but really culture will eat strategy for lunch. And I heard that from a guy named John Hammond years ago, who the CEO of Fortimize. And I, at first I rejected that. I was like, that's BS. Like, no way. Like a good strategy, you know, well executed, but actually it's that who, that culture of people, that high performance team that can roll into a situation and come up with the strategy that needs to be executed. And so hiring uh, Nadia was my first hire and her focus became, people thought I was nuts for doing this for the size of the company, but I was like, all I want you to do is find us A players, people that are going to fit in and they're going to deliver and mainly on sales because we can figure out delivery, but sales is something that is a full-time gig to really grow. And she tackled the problem head on. She created job descriptions. Job descriptions led to phone screening interviews. Phone screening interviews led to in-person interview one, then in-person interview two, and then reference check, and then offer letter. And we were going from like 400 resumes to two offer letters one would accept. And then you still have that 50%. Do they work out long-term? 
And that's been a true leverage point for us growing is her focus on that. And I had to make that conscious decision that instead of pulling profit from the company and paying myself more, I had to reinvest in a who that could help find the talent we would need to continue to grow. And she does that still to this day. And that's been about three years of her focus there. That's great. I, I hope I just want to point one thing out for listeners too. I hope you noted as I have throughout this last 45 minutes of the number of times that Trevor has referenced a book that he read, a mentor that he learned from like John Hammond, you know, for Don, Dan, uh, Dan Sullivan, Roosevelt, like clearly an attribute of Trevor is that he is always learning. He's always growing. It's evident in his hiring decisions. And I just want to bookmark that for our audience of like, what a great hallmark that is, regardless of your career path, that you're hungry and growing and learning and investing in yourself. And this is on top of growing a company. So it's not like Trevor's got a ton of time, but I, I imagine you can see how that has helped him grow as quickly as he has. Yeah, I, I can't say enough that though you don't want to fall into the trap that you're not taking action because you're just, I gotta, I'm not gonna start building my financial model because I gotta go learn every Udemy course or every YouTube video. At some point you have to start building it to actually put into application what you learn. But yeah, you should never stop learning and you know, le- evolving and sharpening your ax at night. Like learn like the higher level concepts, the there's so much content out there that you can tap into. I mean, you can get world-class education on YouTube today or podcasts or the books. I mean, I can grab in my office right now. It's right here. Like, you know, like, I have this book literally tabbed. It's about to fall apart. It's the Jeff Hoffman scale book. And I mean, the amount of notes, like, you know, it's falling apart, you know, like the Gino Wickman traction book. Like these are like, you know, the Vern Harnish, anything Dan Sullivan. There's so much out there that is timeless and that it's all in there. Like, uh, yeah, I can remember the hyperlocal. One of the things that came from uh, the Vern Harnish book, I think and it might have been the Rockefeller Habits, is that the, John Rockefeller would look for the choke points and how he could solve for those choke points in a business, whether that was the barrels that they would ship oil or, and he would try to own those choke points or those key terrain in that ecosystem. So that was big for us in hyperlocal. This is fantastic. Well, uh, Trevor, I know you and I are going to grab lunch soon. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this is just the tip of the iceberg because I've learned so much. I got a page of notes for myself, let alone for our <laughs> audience. But I always like to make space at the end for, you know, is there anything we didn't talk about that you want to make sure listeners know before we wrap up? Uh, I would say, you know, like, regardless of where you're at, I was at an event last night at, for Bunker Labs. And the there was a group of entrepreneurs that graduated a cohort for their veterans and residents. And I think like you, you really have to, it's all worth it to build and to do like, you know, that I know that, but somebody who's like knee deep in it, like you gotta hang in there and understand that business is a marathon and every day you survive and stay open. You just increased your likelihood of epic success because your competition is after 30 days of trying this, they're throwing the towel. So if you're day 31, you've already beat those odds and you've already beat the next odds and just keep in the game. Don't quit on the game. You know, it's one thing to say, Hey, this is a flawed model and I need to pivot, but 
don't quit on, you know, your dream and your vision of what you want, because it, there were years there at the beginning that it didn't, there was no light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, I specifically remember trying to buy groceries and my credit card wouldn't work and being like, like, like so embarrassed for the first time since I was, you know, like a cadet at West Point to an army officer that I like could not buy something because I'd maxed out my credit card and I had no money coming in because it was all going back into the business. And those days suck. <laughs> like that roller coaster, those are rough. Like, you know, hiring and firing, like all that stuff is, none of this is easy. And every week the problems will get harder as you become better. And that's okay. The sooner you accept that, you know, once you reach the next level, things will get harder at that level. And then the next level, they'll get harder to just stay in the game because it's truly a marathon. It's not a very few overnight successes. And I think it's a lot of veterans get frustrated when they're starting out and it just, it's so slow, the progress and they can't see that light. But the reality is the longer you stay in that game, things will start to build faster and then you'll be growing way faster than you ever imagined. And you're like, wow, I'm so glad I didn't get off and quit back at that point or at that point, or I didn't, you know, I stayed in it and had faith that it would work out. So that'd be like my last kind of parting thoughts. This is fantastic, Trevor. So this is Trevor Shirk. His company terrain is spelled T-E-R-R-A-Y-N. We'll have a link to it in the show notes and at beyondtheuniform.org. But Trevor, thank you so much, man, for your time, your wisdom, your uh, honesty on all of this has been extremely helpful. Yeah, truly grateful for what you're doing and for having me. Thank you, Justin. Surface, surface, surface. <laughs> Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our Chief of Staff, Steve Bain, our Editor, Lex Brown, and our Head of Social Media, Janelle Hanf. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. Third of all, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.